From APM, American Public Media, this is the American Radio Works podcast. I'm Stephen Smith. Some classrooms are cold enough where um, students will be wearing their coats and stuff, and I ask them to down, run hot water in their hands to keep them to warm them up so they keep working on the computers. That's Jerry Hoyam, the dean of students at the Boganagashig School in northern Minnesota. The school is located on the Leech Lake Ojibwe Reservation, and Hoyam was speaking in a video produced by the Star Tribune newspaper of Minneapolis. Last year, the paper ran a series of editorials about conditions in schools run by the Federal Bureau of Indian Education, like Bogadagashig. There are 183 BIE schools in the nation, and about a third of these are in poor condition. Editorial writer Jill Burkham led the Star Tribune's investigation into the schools in northern Minnesota and North Dakota. ARW associate producer Suzanne Pico sat down with Burkham and started out by asking her why she decided to investigate the BIE schools. I was interested in this because when I was a reporter, I spent a significant amount of time on the Red Lake uh, Reservation in northern Minnesota and was well acquainted with the challenges of communities like this. And so we we wrote an initial editorial in May of 2014 um, saying, you know, the conditions at the bug school, as it's known, um, were grim and Congress needed to do more. But all of us on the editorial board just felt that one editorial didn't do it justice. And this is about four and a half hours north of Minneapolis and St. Paul. So I drove up there and uh, had an appointment to tour the school. And... You know, I've seen conditions on reservations. I know that there's a lot of poverty. But when I went up there, I was I was just shocked at the condition of the school. Um, it is in a pole barn. Now, this is a Midwestern term for basically a, a metal-clad building that we use to store equipment in or use as barns. Um, and, and this is not even a nice pole barn. Um, so I walked in and, you know, immediately it's clear that this should not be a school. It was never meant to be a school. It was meant to be like a vocational automotive kind of training center. Um, and you walk in and it's, you know, they've tried their best to retrofit it, but there's electrical cables and cords and plumbings that run along the wall. The floor is warped. You look up at the ceiling tiles and they're all like tea-colored stains all over. The roof leaks. A couple of weeks before I'd been there, the roof had caved in because, you know, of all the snow melt that happens up there. There were rodent infestations. There were holes in the, the, uh, on the side of the building. It really struck me or hit me most as a mom. I have two, two kids, and they're products of the Minnesota public schools, which are terrific. But I walked into this science classroom at the Buganagashig School, and it is a science classroom that you can't do experiments in. Um, there's no safety equipment. The desk that you need to do experiments, you know, the black-topped desk with the really dense countertop, they don't have those. Um, they don't have the safety sinks. They don't have microscopes. And, and I just remember standing there and feeling the anger well up in me that we are doing such a disservice. How can we even think that we are doing right by these children when they can't even do science in their science classroom? You know, I went down to another end of the school, and the day that I was there, it was a nice day outside. But I ran into the teacher that works there, and she said that even beginning in the fall, kids have to wear coats and mittens because there's so little protection from the outside elements. And I'm thinking... 
you know, this is Minnesota. This is northern Minnesota. We have extreme winters. And we have a building that kids come to, and we can't even keep them warm. This is crazy. Those conditions that you're describing, if that was something that was happening in a regular public school, would that school have been shut down? I think the way that I would answer that is that there is no way that parents in the Twin Cities or elsewhere would ever tolerate those conditions for their children. Unfortunately, you go to the Leech Lake Reservation or you go to places like Pine Ridge and sometimes they think that it's normal. And that's what's so wrong about this. Some of the kids have gone to different schools and they realize how run down their their schools are. But again, these are often in remote locations. So people have just kind of gotten used to this. What about, aren't there like federal inspectors that are supposed to come by and? Yes. There is supposed to be, obviously, we have a a bureaucracy that administers the system. And as part of that, they have people that come around and do inspections. However, I don't think that the inspections take place as frequently as they should. The school replacement list was last done in 2004. And when I started doing the reporting, there were still three schools that had been left unbuilt. So over the stretch of more than a decade, there had not been hardly any progress in in getting things taken care of. And I I think that there is a defeatism within the Department of Interior, which has jurisdiction over the Bureau of Indian Education System. They know things are bad. I, I think Interior Secretary Sally Jewell cares very deeply about the kids. But I think that the conditions have been so bad for so long and, you know, the agency's hands are tied by funding issues by an entrenched bureaucracy that cares more about paperwork sometimes than it does about the actual conditions on the ground, that just nothing gets done. And that's why I thought it was so important to put a spotlight on this. Skeptics might say, why don't these kids just go to their local public schools if these schools are so bad? Why do these schools matter to these communities? Many of these schools are located in remote reservations. And states, understandably, are reluctant to pick up uh, an expense that belongs to the federal government, so the public school infrastructure may not be there. But there's also a cultural element that is at work here. Bureau of Indian Education schools, many of them uh, you know, were started in the, the late 60s and 70s. They put culture at the heart of everything that the school does. So, for example, your day may start out with a sacred circle in which they pass around a clamshell filled with burning sage. Um, You know, they may include things like curing a deer hide as part of the curriculum or building a a birch bark canoe or wild ricing. That's something that's done in, in northern Minnesota. And this is really important. I think the kids that wind up in Bureau of Indian Education schools have tried elsewhere, tried other schools, and and just not fit in. And so the Bureau of Indian Education schools offer them a sense of belonging. They're often smaller. They keep the kids coming because they're they're bringing in parts of their their culture into the the school. And it's a way to catch the kids that if we don't catch them here, we're not going to catch them at all. All of the culture makes them feel grounded in their their history. Um, there's a term called historical trauma um, that someone who sat next to me at congressional testimony last week used. Um, you know, we've spent over a century trying to, I guess, assimilate 
um, our Native Americans into our culture. And it hasn't worked. You can see this in, in educational outcomes, which are just grim for this group. They have the lowest graduation rate of any group in the United States. So when I talk to, to people and they say, just when, when I ask them, why don't we put kids back into the public schools? They say, we have tried Western education for over 100 years. It doesn't work. Now we need to try something different and we need to let it give it time to work. Are there any examples of BIE schools that are doing really well? Yes, I'm glad that you brought that up. We have four Bureau of Indian Education schools in Minnesota. And one that we went to is on the White Earth Reservation in northern Minnesota. It's called the Circle of Life Academy. And they recently just got a, a new school building. It's it's maybe two or three years old. And it's amazing. It is an, a shining example of what a Bureau of Indian Education school could be. It's a brand new building. They've incorporated um, a lot of the history, the culture, the symbols into the building itself. There's sunlight. There's classrooms that are equipped to give kids all the skills that they need. This is a school that teachers want to come to. Um, they just got a new principal. Uh, her name is Ann Wafi. And I asked her when I was there, because we spent a day there, I said, what types of improvements have you seen since you got a new school building? And she said, um, our attendance issues have greatly improved. Kids want to come here. They feel safe. The discipline issues have decreased as well. You have a proper building, you know, where kids are, they, they're, they're being signaled by this building that their education is valuable and that they themselves are valuable. And it's just common sense that you put kids in a school building and they start valuing their education and their time spent there and their attitudes towards teachers and other students improve. So this is what it can look like. And, and the question is, why is it taking so long in order to, to make sure that all kids in this system have a school like this? What's been the reaction to this series of editorials? The reaction has been very gratifying. We heard from people all over the country, um, and they were surprised to learn just how grim the conditions were at these schools. And the reason is, is that a lot of people don't visit these communities very often. And so people just, this was just not on the radar of citizens um, or even policymakers. Uh, and we've also had a very gratifying response from, uh, especially from the Minnesota congressional delegation. Um, we have gotten uh, uh, congressional members up to the Bug and Negation School so they could see for themselves. And there's been uh, a lot of action both in the Minnesota legislature by Governor Dayton and then at the federal level to, to explore what's going on within these schools and why it's taking so long and why the conditions have been allowed to deteriorate to the point that they have. Now, you wrote this as an editorial writer, um, so that means you didn't have to put on your sort of neutral, unbiased reporter hat. Can you talk about how, what kind of impact you think this has had being an editorial series versus being a reported series? I think it allowed me some freedom as a writer um, and, and as a reporter to connect the dots for people and to really sharpen the words. You know, I could express outrage. I could allow my own you know, outrage as a suburban mom flow through and, and color my writing. And, and I, I hope that that had an impact on our readers, um, that there, there was no, you know, barrier there. People clearly knew that we were on a mission. We were on a mission to get reform, to, to increase awareness, to, to make changes in a big way to a system that was failing kids 
nationally. And I, I thought it was great to have that, that kind of liberty. And I think it was most appropriately done as an editorial. And, and I really hope that it leads to change. That was Jill Burkham, an editorial writer for the Star Tribune of Minneapolis, speaking with American Radio Works associate producer Suzanne Pico. Since the editorial series was published, Burkham was asked to testify at a congressional hearing that looked at challenges facing Native American schools. Burkham was also a finalist for the 2015 Pulitzer Prize in editorial writing. You can find a link to the series, which is called Separate and Unequal, at our website, AmericanRadioWorks.org. While you're there, you can check out podcasts and a variety of issues in higher ed and K-12 education and browse an archive of more than 100 documentary projects, including our 2005 documentary about a school shooting on a reservation in Red Lake, Minnesota. You can also let us know what you think of our coverage at AmericanRadioWorks.org. We're on Facebook at American.RadioWorks and on Twitter at AM RadioWorks. Support for American Radio Works comes from the William and Flory Hewlett Foundation, the Lumina Foundation, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and the Spencer Foundation. I'm Stephen Smith. Thanks for listening. This is APM, American Public Media.